today's program made possible by patrons like you. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it all covered. We talk to those in the entertainment industry and find out about their favorite scores. You found the podcast, What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So sit back, relax, grab a popcorn, and let's see what we'll be hearing today. Recognize that music? It's a favorite of our guest today. Now, she's originally from Wyoming, but she's been on the move ever since. Originally, she wanted to be in front of the camera, but she quickly learned that to satisfy her creative hunger, she would have to go behind the camera. She's a writer, editor, producer, director, who's had numerous awards on the festival circuit. Now, with Halloween upon us, as we're recording this, I thought it'd be a perfect guest to bring her on because of her passion for horror films. Uh, her current film is called Obsidian, which is uh, streaming now. We'll talk about that later. It even has an interesting actor in it. We'll talk about that later, too. Uh, we'll we'll discuss that later, but there for now, I hope all of you will please join me in welcoming Erica Summers to the program. Hi, Erica. Hi. How are you, Frank? I'm, I'm good. Uh, uh, full disclosure to our audience, Eric and I are friends. We've worked together, and so I'm just delighted that we're finally reconnecting here after months of not talking. So this is a great treat for me. Thanks for joining us. Yes, it's all been virtual and Facebook chats for the last like year. So know, it's so good to hear from you. So good to hear your voice. Same here, same here. Well, you know, uh, I don't know if you've listened to any previous programs, but we always like to start it off by getting to know a little bit about our guests. So I was wondering if you could take a few moments and just, you know, kind of tell us about yourself, uh, growing up, school, things like that. Uh, absolutely. Thank you for asking. Uh, so I am from Wyoming, a small town called Casper, which I guess if you're a Wyomingite, it's not that small for Wyoming, but <laughs> compared to the rest of the world, it's very small. And um, I always wanted to be an actress, like growing up. Uh, that was my big dream was to like move out to LA and become famous and basically leave that town in the dust. <laughs> and for the longest time, I tried out for play after play after play and um, didn't get anything. I Nothing in school plays, nothing in the community plays. And my mom and my sister were getting parts, but they just kept telling me, oh, you, you just must not be right for this or that. And like everybody was really kind of coddling me. No one wanted to tell me that you cannot act, girl. <laughs> so <laughs> I... Um, I decided I'm a very like aggressive person, not like aggressive as in 
mean, although I'm sure there's probably some. Oh, I can, I can attest to your aggressiveness, absolutely. Yeah, I'm just a very, <laughs> just a very like, linear, aggressive person. If something gets in the way from A to B, I will just knock it out of the way, and I will, or I will find a way around it. So with this situation, I was like not ready to admit that I was a terrible actress. So I gathered a bunch of friends in high school. Well, a bunch of friends. i gathered a bunch of friend in high school <laughs> uh, because I didn't really have a lot of friends in high school. I was very much a loner. And my siblings, uh, I've got a younger brother named Ryan and a five-year younger sister named Heather. Uh, Heather and I are still like, we're like twins now. We, finish each other's sentences and stuff <laughs> but at the time she was like a tag along and i really wanted nothing to do with her like my brother and i were close and he agreed to be in my movies but my sister was like i want to be in your movies i was like yeah okay you can be a dead body or something like uh, <laughs> you that's all you're really like worth to me right now so i was kind of a jerk growing up um but you were what I'm gathering from this is that since the the acting thing wasn't working out, you said, you know what, I still want to yeah. work in this. I still want to work in this business. I'm going to go behind the camera. Well, kind of, yeah. So it was kind of this epiphany moment. So I get everybody together for this movie that I was going to make, where I was going to be the star, and ah. I was going to prove to the world like how good of an actress I can be if given the chance. And I got behind the camera because nobody else. We all didn't even think about who's going to direct it. So everybody did the not me thing. And I was like, fine, I guess I'll direct it too. And as soon as I got behind the camera and started bossing everybody around, they started doing exactly what I told them to do because I had a, a camera in front of me. Whereas before it was just like, you're bossy. I don't have to do what you say. And I realized just the power that I had when I was behind a camera. And at first it started like this almost evil genius thing where I was like oh my god I can make anybody do anything if I'm holding a camera and then after a while I just decided like I stink as an actress but oh my god I love the creativity of being behind the camera and I love making I love entertaining people I love making stories that uh bring some sort of emotion to people and that I've been behind the camera ever since I I love it Wow, and so and this all started, I guess, when you were like still in high school or something like that. You were using yeah. home video equipment. Yep, uh, sixteen. My dad, I borrowed my dad's uh, handy cam and his tripod. Uh, I don't even think he knew it at the time. Uh, <laughs> later on, he ended up giving it to me because he's just like you use it more than I do. But uh, yeah, I just stole it out of the closet and the tripod and gathered a bunch of friends and a little fifteen-page script and made a little short film called the stalker where i am a female stalker and i'm trying to get this guy who doesn't want me and then i kill everybody basically <laughs> now i'm curious i'm curious do you do you have a copy of that still i do it's on vhs though oh no, 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 yeah but that's all right you you, you yeah. need to convert it though you actually try to I get do. Your, just, I do. Yeah, just for yourself copy. not for anybody just for yourself not for anybody else I mean. yeah yeah uh i've got all of my films i've got all my shorts I made another short after that uh, where I was also the star because I couldn't get anybody to want to be in it because I was so just really bossy at the time. <laughs> I had not learned to fine tune like my asking nicely for things and me being like, I have the power because I have the camera. <laughs> 
And so I made another movie called The Grum, which is my first little monster movie. And it was a monster I made out of found trash around the house. And <laughs> it turned out really cool. Like it was so much better than the last one. And everybody was like, all right, I got to be honest with you. Your acting is not good, but your filmmaking has potential. And they were like huh. giving me money to make another movie as long as I wasn't in it, like as a major part of it. Right. And so that's how we funded my first feature, which is wow. Sins of the Flesh, a uh, cannibal movie. So, then- I mean, did you, so did you, um, perhaps I'm getting ahead of my, uh, ourselves, but I mean, so as a result of doing that, did you go like to film school or did you study at a college or? Much later. So in Wyoming, there is no film program in, in any of the colleges there. Yeah. I think there is now. There might be now, but we're talking 20 some years ago. Yeah. Uh, and there, there was not. So they, the closest thing that they had was uh, fine arts. And I also draw and paint. So I was, I got a full ride scholarship to go to school for that. So I ended up getting my degree in fine art. And then later on, everyone kept asking me about a film school degree. So I ended up doing an online film school, which I definitely learned a lot from it, but it's not something that I really brag about just because it's not like a major film. It's not like full sale or one of those really well-known ones. Um, They are accredited, but it's called lights film school Academy. Um, so nobody's really ever heard of it. And it's basically just so I can have the paper on my wall that says, I know <laughs> kind of what I'm talking about. Well, you but know, I had already made like four features by the time I got it. So I, I pretty much self-taught, uh, at that point, it was just like a refresher and teaching me like some of the tricks about like crossing eye lines and you know mm, yeah, yeah. The invisible lines and stuff like that so okay. yeah but i even tried doing a comedy and a drama for a while because everyone was like oh your movies are getting better but we really don't like horror so could you try something else and they're like you know you're funny you should try a comedy so i did a mob comedy like a goofy mob comedy called for kevin's sake um, and it was cute, but poorly executed. Um, <laughs> it was made on like $5. So, you know, and, and, but I had a lot more friends at the time. So it was literally just like watching a yearbook of all my friends at the time, <laughs> like a time capsule. Oh, that's great. That's great. Now, yeah. since this is a, a show about film music, let's, let's dive into that. The, yeah, absolutely. One of the cues that you chose was from the film called Pet Cemetery. This is the I guess, for lack of a better way of saying it, the original film back in 1989. Yes. Uh, it's written by Elliot Goldenthal. Tell us a little bit about why you wanted to choose that amongst your favorites to play today. So that is actually my all-time favorite film score. It's the one where every time I watch the movie, every time I hear it, it sends some sort of chill right through my body. Wow. And I've never really experienced that with, too much other like film score film music uh on a conscious level like i'm sure there's so many movies where the hair raised on my arm because of the music but i i wasn't consciously thinking wow this music is scaring the heck out of me mm-hmm. i was thinking like wow this movie's really scary 
But Pet Cemetery was one of the first ones where I actually realized the importance of music, the importance of the people doing the score and those children's choir voices that are doing the little um, chant or whatever throughout. It, it almost sounds like a, like a Gregorian chant, but with little kids' voices. And mm-hmm. it just gets me every single time I watch the movie or every single time. I've gotten on a couple of soundtrack CDs, and it's always the first one that I go to. <laughs> and it's always the one that just I want to play it like five times in a row because it's just absolutely creepy to me. All right. Well, let's uh, let's have a listen for ourselves. Uh, the film is called Pet Cemetery. This is the main theme from that film, and it's written by composer Elliot Goldenthal.
Now, one of the things I found interesting, I, I didn't bring this up. Um, well, you know what? Actually, before we do that, let's go back to your previous comment about uh, about music. And that particular, the score we just played from Pet Cemetery, it makes your skin crawl and, you know, all these sorts of other things. It's being a filmmaker now, is there, I guess you have a, a real appreciation for music, obviously, in your own films. I mean, you can see without music, there, it's, it's a lot of times these films are just, they fall dead when there's no music. Absolutely. So, so, I mean, just kind of talk to me about, about what your philosophy is in terms of film music for for your own projects. Well, I think the importance of music is so fascinating now that I'm making my own films uh, because when you're filming these scenes and sometimes these are, you know, you've got monsters, you've got brains on the floor, you've got all these creepy elements, but it still feels silly when you're on set. And I'm sure you experienced that a few times on Obsidian where it was like, you look around and everything looks like it's scary on camera, but behind the scenes, it's like, we're having fun. We're joking <laughs> around. We know the guy in the monster suit. We know that the brains are bloody mashed potatoes from the refrigerator. Like we know all of these little tips and tricks. So it almost seems silly to us in the moment when we're filming it. And when I get it back to the editing room floor and I put it in the computer and I start working with it, it's always like the first thought on my mind is, is this going to work? Is this even going to play right? And then you add the music to it and oh my God, it just brings it to a completely different level mm. of, wow, that's actually scary. Wow, that actually played like I wanted it to or like I thought it would in my mind. And that's where the real magic comes in. I think in general, the whole magic behind a movie is in editing. There's so many cool things that you can do on set and practical effects and stuff like that. But honestly, the real magic is how it is cut together and the pacing and like you can turn a good actor bad or a bad actor good in uh -huh. editing. Um, and then when you start adding that music or you even try different feels of music or like sometimes I have stock music that I try out first uh, to at least see where I kind of want to go with it. And when I put that over there, it's like, okay, well, wow, this actually has a better feel when it's got sort of somber music to it. Or wow, like even with that Pet Cemetery song, the like the children are chanting and singing, and it's almost could be construed in like a positive way. Like if you just heard that on the street and you stopped and you saw a school full of children just singing that happily on the playground it would provide a completely different feel and like context for everything. Mm. And it's the same song. But when you put that over a creepy children's pet cemetery graveyard and all these weird happenings that are happening in the movie, it just gives it this whole magic, this whole feel and this whole, um, the je ne sais quoi. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know <laughs> exactly how to, no, how I to know say what it. you're saying. Yeah. And it was and interesting on, 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 you know, uh, uh, we're going to talk about obsidian later, but, uh, you were kind enough to kind of let me contribute a little bit to at least temp Absolutely. tracking it and, uh, and, and, you know, for where we wanted to insert music and stuff. And it is, it's fascinating the whole process of seeing something without music 
and and you can have the finest performances ever and the greatest special effects and it, yeah it makes an impact but music just really brings it over the top it finishes absolutely it. so it's it was fascinating to kind of go through that process i really enjoyed it yeah and you brought so much to the table when you did that too because you even came up with a few ideas of things i hadn't even thought about i was like wow i never would have thought about putting music in this scene or i never would have thought about putting that sort of uh the music with that sort of feel in this scene and it's really opened my eyes to like a lot of different opportunity like a lot of different possibilities for the music in obsidian because you did that so it's oh, such an interesting process you're embarrassing me thank you <laughs> and by the way you I'm avail- thank you. You, and by you the way really- i'm available yeah, i'm available for other projects by the way yeah <laughs> you should you should think if you have a project and you're thinking about it do not hesitate frank is amazing oh that's very kind of you to say Let's uh, since we are talking about music, let's let's look at another film you had chosen. I guess we're on a Stephen King kick here. Uh, yeah. The film is called Children of the Corn, and you uh, chose the main theme for that. Tell us a little bit about uh, what was your reasoning uh, of including that amongst your favorites. So this is my second favorite, and it's honestly these two pair well together because they're creepy to me for exactly similar reasons. It's another song where children are singing in like a choir-like tone and when you pair it with the images of the movie it is just got it's got this sort of haunting feel where it's especially especially applicable to these two movies because one is about a children's pet cemetery where children you know bury their their beloved pets and the children of the corn and you know obviously both are stephen king but i don't think that they necessarily did that intentionally just because uh, you know they're both stephen king movies i think it just really fits the time period uh, that was a uh, kind of a big thing to do in the 80s um i've seen it in a lot of other films but these two were the ones that i felt did it the best uh but yeah it just adds such an a creepy element knowing (laughs) that there are evil children at play and the children are the ones basically making the backbone of the music for this okay yeah well, well let's have a listen to this again the film is called children of the corn this is the main theme and it's written by composer jonathan elias
I did mention, uh, but I did want to ask you about it because not only have you been working on your own projects uh, and, and performing a lot of duties on that, but you, you also work in the industry, which I'm assuming helps add to your knowledge by working on, you know, on other productions that are headed up by other people. Right. I, I know you've worked on, a, like uh, when you were in the New Orleans area, you worked on a lot of different, uh, very big TV programs and, and, and you were what is called a, a grip. Yes. So help, help inform me and our listeners. What the heck is a grip? I get asked that a lot, and honestly, when I was a kid, I used to ask my dad the same thing when we'd watch movie credits. I was like, what is a grip? And he his response was, it's the person who tapes down all of the cables on set, I think. And later on, when I was on my first big film set, so I had made several movies on my own, but they were just like, I'm flubbing my way through them, I'm going only by what I've read in books and what I've seen in documentaries about people making movies. Right. Um, so I had made several movies, uh, made like four features at this point. Um, and then I moved to Louisiana and I, a friend that I was on the festival circuit with, um, he and I, we had our movies competing all the time, but we had this like friendly camaraderie, um, really nice person his name is gustavo cooper and he moved to los angeles right as i was moving to L uh, to louisiana and he calls me right after that and said hey guess what i just got a three picture deal and one of our movies is shooting in louisiana in baton rouge right by you uh he's like are you interested in coming to be a pa and i was like okay cool this would be my wow. first chance to be on like a big film set and like that's really what i would love to do is like start understanding how big films do it so i was on his film i think i was on his film for three weeks and the whole time i was getting to know the grip department on that movie uh which i'm still friends with all of them today they're some of the most wonderful people i've ever met in my life and uh jesse he's a key grip uh, would give me um information about like what all the equipment is and i'd be like what so what is it that you guys do and he would say, we shape the lights. So we work in, so the grips are the G and electrics are the E in the G and E department. So if you hmm. ever hear the G and E department, that's what it is, is they set up the lights, they run the power, we shape the lights, we color the lights, and we rig up all kinds of other rigs uh, where we can hang lights or um, screens or things like that. We run a lot of heavy machinery. Um, so yeah, it's basically, we shape the lights. We carry all the heavy crap on set, uh, <laughs> constantly carrying mambos and combos and sandbags and, uh, putting a lot of stress on my body over the years, but I really love it. And over the last 10 years of being a grip, I've been able to see and learn on set and watching how other dps do things how other sound does you know uh boom yeah. ops do things how you know everyone every department it gives me front row seats to be able to ask them questions and see how they do what they do so when i came on to do obsidian i had i was armed with a lot more knowledge of how to do a lot with a small budget so now i'm curious was were you I'm guessing, I, you know, I know, I think I know the answer to this, but I just would like to hear your thoughts on it. Were you in the minority being a woman on the, on that team or? Uh, unbelievably so. Yes. Uh, I was. And what was that like? Time, and 
I, for a long time, I was the only female grip in the state of Louisiana. <laughs> um, then, uh, then there was another girl named Rachel who was there for, she had been there for a while, but by the time I got there, she was uh, moving to Georgia. And then by the, the time I was getting ready to leave about a year before I left, there was another girl named Tori. But other than that, I was, I was it. I was, uh, when the crew from Connecticut came down to Baton Rouge and they were trying to hire a bunch of grips, uh, which is how I met my boyfriend, Dave Sakura now. Um, they, he was asking the, you know, a lot of the crew, he's like, Hey, do you guys have anyone that you recommend? And they gave him my name and they said, you should call the girl grip. And he goes, what do you mean the girl grip? And they're like, the girl grip, like, she <laughs> the girl grip. So it, it, he couldn't believe that there was only one female, um, but sure enough, I, it's a it's the South. It's a lot of good old boys. It's a lot of oh, um, yeah. sexism down there. But I I trounced through all that and uh, came out on top. And now they loved working with me by the end. Yeah, and you and you did uh, uh, just to let our audience know. Let's see. I, I know you worked on NCIS New Orleans. What were some of the other shows you worked on? Um, Claws is another one I worked okay. on for four yeah. seasons. Uh, it's got Niecy Nash. It's a wonderful, bizarrely wonderful show. <laughs> um, Preacher is another one I worked on for two or three seasons. Um, Scream season one I worked on. I okay. worked on a, a lot of films too, like uh, the movie Eli on Netflix that did really, really well on Netflix. Um that was me. I was a company grip on that. I did a movie called Hate Crime. Oh, um, yeah. A lot of other... I've, I've done a lot of other ones that aren't really coming. Oh, June was my first one. That was the one where I started as a PA and ended as a grip. Uh, and it's got um, Casper Van Dien and a bunch of other people in it. And it's a horror movie. And I really loved being... You know, the, the fact that my first big movie I was ever on the set of was a horror movie. And it was directed <laughs> by my friend, you know? So yeah. that was really yeah. cool. Well, um... Going back to the music, one of the one of the cues you chose is is a particular favorite of mine. Uh, for those of you that maybe been following what's been going on with uh, with my connection to Erica on the film Obsidian, I had made mention in an interview that I wasn't I wasn't like a big horror fan, but I mean there were certain f- films I did like, and uh, the one we're going to talk about now is one of them. The film I'm talking about is The Exorcist, oh. and I guess it might be. I guess if memory serves me, it, it probably was the first quote horror film I ever saw. And oh, I mean, wow. I saw it in the theater. I mean, so, I mean, it, it shows how old I am, um, <laughs> uh, but, but, and, 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 but this music, oh, this music just really, I just love this piece of music that you chose. It's called oh. tubular bells. A lot of people know it. It's written by Mike Oldfield. Uh, tell us a little bit about why you wanted to uh, choose that amongst your favorites today. So that is a favorite of mine, uh, mostly because, <laughs> I, I love the film. I love the song, but the lore around the film that my parents kind of inspired is it gives me more chills than the movie itself does because <laughs> they had, they also were, you know, the first time they ever saw it was in the theater. And my parents only saw the movie three times in their whole life and then they banned it from our home. Oh, wow. So, and they're huge, huge, huge horror fans. Like, so the <laughs> fact that it was banned from our home, I was like, this thing has to be really bad. And I was not allowed to watch it growing up. Uh, wow. I had to sneak over to a friend's house to watch it for the first time. 
and uh, which is bizarre because my mother would let us watch any you know any sort of Tom Savini slaughtering you know <laughs> piece of horror. Um, so the the stories I'll try to keep it brief, but the stories are. The first time they saw it in the theater and people were screaming and leaving the theater and banging on the doors and just there was like an absolute frenzy and it scared my dad so much that he was like, I don't like this at all. So it took him another like year or so to work up the courage to watch it again uh, at home on VHS and they him and my mother were watching it one night and they both swear i obviously wasn't there but they both swear that the tv shot sparks during the movie and like that they saw like it shoot a spark like partly across the room or something (laughs) and then the tv never worked again uh and they threw the tv out they threw the vhs out and they were like no this we're not gonna do this and then years later, and this is 1984 now, uh, they finally decided they wanted to watch it again. So I think they rented it from the video store. Okay. And they put it in, and all of a sudden, halfway through, they started hearing uh, weird scratching noises and then cop cars. And it turns out that this guy from down the street, he was having a spat with his either wife or girlfriend. Um, they had kids together and uh, his name was Eric Anderson and he decided to hold her hostage and hold the kids hostage and then when the cops started coming he let them go he came down the alley to our house Um, he tried to slit his wrists in our yard and tried to claw his way into the garage it was cold it was snowy and he tried to claw his way into the garage. When he couldn't get into the garage, he curled up under my dad's work van and slit his throat and died. Whoa! And so the cops come to our house. Uh, and again, this is a year before I'm born. The cops come to our house. They're telling us what all has happened. There's blood all over our garage. Like, I still have pictures of it. And there's, you know, this. they're pulling a dead body out from under my dad's van. And uh, they're like, wow, you know, you're lucky that he couldn't get into the garage because who knows what could happen. And they were like, that's it. We're throwing this movie away. And then <laughs> the irony is that later on, they found out it was one year exactly to the day before I was born. And they named me Erica. And then later on, they realized his name was Eric Anderson. So Eric A. <laughs> and they were just like, I don't know why we did that. But, I, you know, they just they got rid of it from the house. They were like, you're not allowed to watch it. And I just remember when I went over to my friend's house to finally watch it for the first time, I remember hearing the tubular bells song and I was just like, Ooh, I don't, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to me for watching this, but it was like basically our version of the ring, uh, you know, where you watch yeah. it and then seven days later you die or something. But it was that it was the exorcist for my family where I was like, oh, well, don't put that in or bad things yeah, are going to happen. And it's interesting. I'm not a musician, but, 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 it basically is kind of like a very simple thing that just repeated and repeated and repeated right. and repeated, but, but that's what makes it so effective. Exactly. And, and, and to your point, I remember you can look this up on YouTube. You can see interviews with, with, with people who are just emerged from the theater after having watched it. And I'm talking about when it was originally released. Yeah. This was a film that was way ahead of its time. And, and these people are disturbed. I mean, they, I mean, they were freaking out 
Yeah. And, and, you, and what you described is indeed true. Some people were, were, you know, wanted to leave or did leave or whatever. It's just amazing. Well, enough talk about that. Let's hear, let's hear this uh, music because it's, it's actually a, a rather long cut. Uh, again, uh, it's called the Tubular Bells. It's from the film called The Exorcist, and it's written by Mike Oilfield.
We'll get back to our program in a minute. This program is done for the love of film and film music, plain and simple. However, it does take a huge investment in time and in fees for me to make the program work for you. I don't sell commercial time and don't really want to on this program. Rather, I'm kind of like a, a public broadcasting station. I need support from listeners like you. For as little as $3 a month, you can help me uh, uh, offset the time spent in putting the program together. Or maybe you just think of it as leaving a tip in the tip jar. Either way, if you can join up, uh, there will be bonuses, like an additional 10 to 15 minute segment with our guest every week, where we'll play additional cues as well as ask uh, some extra questions. And it's going to be only available to patrons. How do you sign up? Well, it's simple. You go to patreon.com slash what's the score, and that's all one word. That's Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash what's the score. Check it out. We'd be grateful for your support. That's Patreon.com. Something that uh, I, I think is worth worthwhile bringing up because I think it's a part of who you are as a person and one of the reasons why I uh, have such respect and, and admire you so much. Uh, you had a battle with cancer when you were very, very young. I did. I was 19, actually. And, and so I, what, I, what I was curious was that what is it that that experience taught you? And, you know, what would you tell others about that experience, the fact that you you went through it and you beat it. It was strangely enough, the best thing that ever happened to me. And I don't say that because I would ever want it again. Cause I would not, it was awful. It was expensive. It was heartbreaking for so many people, including myself, but it taught me everything. It taught me everything I feel like I really needed to know about life and how short it is and how it is not promised and how you cannot take any time for granted because it, it's heartbreaking. I hear a lot of people say stuff where they're like, I'm only 38. I've got a lot of years left. It's like, you don't know that. I was told at 19 that I was going to die. I literally, they thought it was cat scratch fever at first. I have all these lumps showing up on the front of my neck. And I kept saying, I think it's cancer. The doctors were like, no, you're too young for cancer. And I was like, I disagree. That's not what the internet says. And they're like, yeah, well, one of us has the degree and the other one <laughs> on the internet. So why don't you calm down? <clears throat> you know, it's those doctors that are like, oh, you think WebMD is smarter than me, huh? You know? <laughs> And uh, I kept insisting, and months later, they were like, oh, wow, you do have cancer. And at the time, we didn't know that my father had been keeping um, health insurance on me. So uh, 
as far as I knew, well, we didn't have health insurance. And so I went through a bunch of different programs oh to the gosh. state and they would not help me because I didn't have children out of wedlock. Oh. This was in Florida. And they were, I, I looked at the one lady and said, wow, so because I didn't have children while I was unmarried, I, you're telling me I'm going to die? And she goes, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Next. And oh. called the next lady into the room. Very callous. And I remember being 19 years old and thinking, my life is over. It's literally over before it began. And I went to my doctor and he's like, well, there's not much we can do if you don't have health insurance. And he said, I know this is a horrible thing to say, but I think you need to start getting funeral arrangements and stuff in order and Holy getting everything smokes. like you want it. So I literally at 19 and a half, I planned my own funeral. I picked out the picture that they were going to use for oh, me. Geez. I picked out the music and I'm sitting here trying to be strong and handle all this. Cause my family was just melting down and rightfully so like I understandably so, but it was like so bizarre that I was trying to keep it together for them while planning my own funeral. And, oh, and we found out that my dad was keeping health insurance on me. Thank God, you know, and, uh, they got me on chemo, but it wasn't for like another seven months. And I had 72 tumors from my ears to my groin by the time they started chemo on me. And um, Holy smokes. So, yeah. So for a year and a half, I thought I was going to die. It was one of the fastest growing types of cancers. Um, and, uh, you know, four months later, after being on chemo, I was tumor free and, you know, did all the treatments and stuff like that. And. I gained so many valuable lessons from it because after having to plan your own funeral at 19, <laughs> I'm on a different time schedule than everybody else. Like my clock ticks at a different pace than everybody else's. And people are always like, oh, there'll be time for that. There'll be time. Let's let's wait a year and save some more money to make a movie. And I'm like, no, it's got to be now. Yeah. And sometimes that doesn't work for me because it's like sometimes I go off half cocked on things and if I'd have spent six more months of planning then it would have been a lot better but at the same time I don't really regret it well you know and, and your answer is very familiar to me from others that I have heard that have faced the same challenge that it was a, a valuable lesson and that actually okay. it may have been the best, not, you know, it, it comes out wrong. The best thing that ever happened yeah. to them. Not, you know, not really, but from a learning standpoint and how to approach life in the future, I, I've heard that before. So I, I'm curious, and, and I don't know if I have any listeners that are facing similar challenges right now, but any advice you would have for someone that finds them uh, themselves in a similar predicament to yours? Uh, positive mindset, I think, is a huge, huge, huge part of why I survived. Um, the fact that I was very headstrong and was like, I don't care what the doctor says, I'm going to beat this. And I looked up every herbal remedy, every holistic treatment, everything in the in the meantime to try to, you know, I was looking up clinical trials myself, you know, and uh, I would have done, I would have put anything, you know, in my veins to try to get rid of that stuff and to live. And it's just, it's a similar feeling as the car accident that I had a year ago where I almost died. It's like one of these moments where after it happens, you're like so grateful to be alive. And it just reminds you, oh, my God, I could die at any time. I have to make my mark on this world. 
and I can't have children, especially due to the chemo. But even if I could have, I, I don't think I would have. Um, wow. So I have to leave my mark in another way. You know, I have yeah. to try to leave a legacy through movies. I, boy, I, I connect to that. I understand. Um, okay. Thank you. And I know that's highly personal, but I, I appreciate no, you sharing I, that. I um, love sharing that story just because I think there's a lot of people who are struggling with stuff like that in private and they would be surprised to know how many people have had to deal with stuff like that. And yeah, you know, well, well, and, and here I've, you know, here, I know you faced that challenge, but I, I didn't know to what degree I'm, I'm, I'm bowled over by your, by your story. It's absolutely amazing and, and quite inspiring. Um, okay. All right. Shucks. Let's go back to the music. Um, another one you chose, I don't know if this is the name of the film or not. I got a little confused on this. Uh, Requiem for a Dream, and you chose the Overture. Is that the name of the film? Uh, Requiem for a Dream is the name of the film, and okay. the Overture, yeah, I think it's Summer Overture, is um, the actual title of that particular score, like that particular piece. Because he does, right. Clint Mansell does uh, scoring throughout that movie and obviously many others. And he also used the same summer overture at the end of the movie Smoke and Aces with Ryan Reynolds and Jeremy huh. Piven. Yeah. Uh, it's like an action movie. Um, and I think it works just as well in both settings, both this horrific drama. Um, I consider Requiem for a Dream a horror movie, but it's I guess it would really be a drama, like a bizarre drama uh, by uh, Aronofsky. He's the director and he is incredible. It's very disjointed it's very eerie it's very um chaotic you feel like you're on drugs when you watch the movie and but this uh <laughs> summer overture is such a beautiful piece and it really punctuates the parts of the movie where it's used and also in smoke and aces like i it literally brings tears to my eyes when i hear it in smoke and aces because of the scene wow. that's going on behind it um, wow. But it's also, oddly enough, uh, the song, the, I was married for a long time ago, and uh, that was the song I walked down the aisle to as the summer overture for <laughs> Requiem for a Dream, which is a oh, bizarre wow. piece to walk down the aisle to, but it's so gorgeous. And I'm, I'm not familiar with the composer, Clint Mansell, I think, right? So, I mean, yeah. I, I don't... he's done a lot of movie scoring, actually. So, I'm very surprised to hear you say that, but you should definitely check him out. I will. He has done a lot of movies, and he, like, a lot of the movies that I watch, and I often hear myself going, Ooh, this song is so good. And then I see that Clint Mansell has scored the movie <laughs> at the end, and I'm like, Oh, that makes total yeah, sense. Now I know why I liked it. Yeah. 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 Well, let's, let's have a listen for ourselves. Again, this is from a film called Requiem for a Dream, and this is the Summer Overture, and it's written by composer Clint Mansell.
So I'm I'm curious. Do you um? Let's see how to say this. I, I, are you are you hoping to kind of continue on this path as an independent filmmaker, or do you have aspirations or dreams of you know getting a, a big studio project horror film, or would you rather kind of stay through this independent path? Honestly, I know people around me are going to roll their eyes and smack <laughs> their foreheads when I say this, but I really want to stay independent. I know everybody is pushing and rooting for me to get some sort of a studio deal at some point so I can work with some, you know, really big name actors and, you know, finally make, you know, the big director money and stuff. But honestly, I just personally don't think I have the personality for it. I am too bossy and (laughs) I am too controlling over my projects to put it in someone else's hand and let them, uh, go their own way with it because as you know you know uh the struggle with this movie obsidian has been real i hired on a producer i basically and and we'll get to that if you don't mind we'll get to that in a moment but i know what you're saying at least what i'm hearing is that you like like that creative freedom that that being an independent filmmaker gives you because if you give in if you do a studio project you got the the suits that'll say no we don't like this part or you can't do this or you can't say that. And and, and you don't want that influence, I, I guess. One domino to fall in the wrong direction. And the movie is like a, a thumbs down. Like so many people, uh, they make great movies, but the poster art is garbage. And you don't have control over that sometimes. Yeah. And, you know, uh, or the trailer is trash and the movie can be great, but the, tra- you know, or the, uh, publicity is garbage for it, you know, and it's like very tricky because all of those stars have to align for it to be a success. Whereas when you're an uh, independent filmmaker, I feel like your expectations are tempered a little bit more. You hope you're making the next, like, you know, big uh, Blair Witch, but at the same time, you know, realistically, there, it's probably going to be another one that, you know, gets on those eight movies for five dollars bins at walmart you know so well that was and and it was interesting i was trying to think you you named the movie i was thinking of um there there are some there are some independent projects that are successful like blair witch what what would be others that maybe our our listeners might know about some independent films that maybe did better than paranormal activity was another i know the found footage ones are always really high grossing uh, and they're also big fan favorites usually, but they're made on like no money. So I know all the paranormal activities, like eventually I think those got uh, made by studios, but at first I believe those were independent filmmakers as well. And there's there's definitely been a handful of ones. Uh, I know like there's a movie in an Australian film called The Loved Ones, and it's a really gory, really scary movie. And the, a lot of the actors ended up being on bigger TV shows and stuff much later in life. But it was one of those that was made on, you know, definitely less than 100000 And it turned out amazing. And, like, people really, really enjoyed it. Uh, I, I still have it on DVD. I love that movie. So yeah, it can they're, be done. they're out there, but they're not common, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um. There was a, uh, I guess the film was called Candyman. Is that correct? Is that what we're going to play yeah. next? 
the original. film called Candyman, and you chose Helen's theme from that particular uh, film. Tell us a little bit about why you want to include that one today. That one is just one of my favorite piano songs in general. It's another simple melody, kind of like Tubular Bells, uh, that replays over and over. Uh, but it's got this really nice uh, change of emotion throughout. And it really works in a variety of situations. They play it several times throughout the movie. And like they, I, I know they play it at one part where she's being inquisitive and she's uh, learning the mystery of Candyman. She's learning the lore and she's poking around in places where she really doesn't belong. And then later... I remember there's a couple of scenes where something really tragic happens and she's having an absolute meltdown and they're playing this song and it works in that situation too. So I think the versatility of this song is what makes it so amazing to me is they just, they use it, they don't overuse it, but they use it a lot in the movie and it just works with everything and it hits such pure notes a few times in the songs that it just makes me want to cry. It brings wow. like a tear to my eye sometimes when I even just hear the song, just because it makes me want to like dance or something. If I had a music box that would play that song, I would love it forever. Just because <laughs> I would, I would want it open. I would wind that thing up all the time. Cause it's just such a sweet, beautiful song, but it can be used for everything. Like it's, all right. So well, let's, I've never seen a song that versatile. You got my curiosity up. Let's have a listen for ourselves. This is a again from the film called Candyman. The uh, the cut is called Helen's Theme, and it's written by composer Philip Glass.
Okay, we can't do this show without having you talk about your latest project, Obsidian. Tell yeah. us a little bit about uh, about that recent project. I know, and uh, we had you had started to mention it, and then I cut you off. But Obsidian has had a long journey, and you know, yeah. and I think some of our listeners who might be interested in trying to do their own projects need to listen to this story. Yeah, so Obsidian, I started it about seven, uh, almost eight years ago now. Um, I wrote the script. I had just moved to Louisiana. I really wanted to make another movie as, because my last movie before that, Mr. White, had been a pretty good success. Like it, We had won a lot of awards on the festival circuit. We were really flying high and buzzing off of that. And so I was visiting my friend Nick in Florida. Um, I had come back to Florida for a visit and I was so heartbroken when I left him just because of having to watch him struggle all weekend to try to um, make me comfortable and he's in a wheelchair. So everything is difficult for him. I kept thinking on the drive home. I was like, I, if, I wish there was a pill that could make him walk again, but knowing my luck, it would work too well and he'd end up being deformed in a new way or something like that. <laughs> and by the time I finished the 11 hour drive home, I had this whole plot like ready to write down. So it was only weeks after that, that I had a rough draft of the movie done where I was like, this is going to be such a cool idea. And I got a, a friend from my last film uh, involved and he was like not only do I want to be in this but I would like to produce it and I, at first I was like I don't know about that uh, I really don't work well with a lot of other people <laughs> telling me what to do and he's like no no you can have full control and I didn't I, I signed up with him I didn't end up getting full control so I thought I would have full creative control and I definitely didn't mistakes were made on both ends and it was one of those things where every time i gave him a hard line of this is something that i won't compromise on he would be like yeah yeah no problem and then two weeks later it would be like okay well i need you to compromise on one of those things just one and then a month later was another one and then yeah but and then it was all of them and so they got another producer involved that tried to fire me, which I didn't even know I could be fired from my own movie. And <laughs> uh, it was just years of this back and forth of getting my hopes up about budget and having all these big actors read it and agree to do it for less than their normal rate because they love the script and then having our budget fall through and stuff like that. So after a while, you know, the producer admitted to me that horror wasn't really his passion. He wanted to go in a different direction and made me wait my contact contract out. And then once I got the contract back after seven years of waiting, I immediately started production. Like I was locked and loaded and ready to roll. Like I had a new draft of the movie where I rolled it all back to much closer to what I had at the beginning. Um, changed the name, changed a lot of the different things in it to make it my own again, yeah. and then started casting. And I cast Frank in it. Um, Shocking. And <laughs> Frank is amazing in it. If, if any of you out there that are listening to this, you should see it just for Frank because Aww. he is phenomenal in it. He is so, – you did you did perfect. You were everything that I ever wanted for that character. And, You're going to make me uh, cry now. Thank you. I mean, look, you – 
you took a chance on me, kiddo. You really did. And I, and I will always be grateful. I am so glad. I'm so glad that it worked out the way that it did because it was between you and another person. You had both sent me your reels and headshots and I watched both of the reels over and over again. And I loved yours just so much. I was like, you, he just has the feel for what I want. And I feel like he could play the, it's a character with a lot of duality. So he's got to have a range and your reel showed me that you had range and I could just see you in this part. And then when I met like he took it very, the other guy took it very poorly um, basically gave me a middle finger and was like, Whoa. see ya, don't ever contact me again. And uh, I was I was like, yeah, I'm sorry that it <laughs> went this way, but at the same time, when I met you during the table read, right. I, knew, I I called my sister up the next day and I was like, he was the right choice. He was, he's the one. Um, and you carried it. You you did such a good job and I I wouldn't have done anything different you know, as, as far as that goes, like we definitely, you know, mistakes are always made on any movie. And, you know, we had a lot of trials and tribulations with like monster suits going missing, yes. trying to film reshoots during COVID and things like that during this one. But you were never, a, you were such a joy to have. Uh, we, we called him steroid Frank for a lot of the shoot because he had, um, bronchitis at one point and he had gotten a steroid shot oh, and man. came to set and the steroids i don't know what was in that steroid shot but it just made you so funny and so fast uh at your comebacks and i remember you and hick just joking back and forth with each other all day long and we so we started calling you steroid frank because it was just <laughs> you're just cracking me up so, <laughs> yeah but it was a. Uh... It was a labor of love on your part. I know that. Yes. And, uh, and it was a long journey, but I think it was well worth it. I, I hope our listeners, if they haven't yet, uh, will certainly try to check out uh, the movie called Obsidian. And where can people see it? Everywhere. Everything streaming just about right now has it available for rent, especially Amazon Prime, uh, Tubi, Vudu, um, any of those apps. Uh, and then I think they are working on some other apps down the line once it goes to free streaming. So right now, uh, we definitely want people to try to rent it um, and or uh, buy it on streaming if you can. Uh, I also just got the okay from the distributors to start selling physical copies again on our website. Oh, cool. Which is www.obsidianmovie.com. So those will be back up soon, uh, available for sale if you want a DVD or a Blu-ray copy. But yeah, definitely check it out. Amazon Prime is definitely the easiest place to find it. Uh, Apple, iTunes, we're on all of those. Uh, I think it's Apple. I think it's Apple. I don't know. Uh, iTunes and then uh, just about every streaming app right now except Shudder. So hopefully that one's coming in the future. Uh, that one in Netflix and Hulu, but we'll we'll see on that. I, I'll have to wait to hear from that. But yeah, definitely check it out if you can. Help support us independent filmmakers who are busting our humps out here to try to entertain you guys. <laughs> and we really appreciate it from the bottom of our hearts. We do because without you, without audiences, we are making movies for no one. We are making movies for to sit on shelves, basically. Yeah, no, you're. Yeah, very well said. Very well said. Uh, any anything in the pipeline for uh, 
for Erica Summers right now? Uh, yeah, right now I'm working my butt off uh, as a grip still. I just moved to Connecticut and have been uh, getting in with the um, like IATSE gigs and stuff like that up here. And um, as far as my own personal creative endeavors, um, I, I wrote a book a while back called Mantis. It's available on Amazon and I'm considering writing another book right now. Uh, but also I'm working on two scripts, uh, both horror and one I'm going to try to option or sell to fund the other one. So one I would one I want to produce, uh, but I need the money to produce it. And then the other one, I it's a really great story, but it's something that is out of my budget. And it's something that I would like to hopefully sell to some sort of studio or production company uh, to be able to afford to um, hire people for the next one. All right. Well, uh, and, and how do people, if they're interested in following you, uh, do you have, have, a, have a social media presence? Yeah. So I am on social media on Facebook, uh, Erica Summers um, on Instagram. I'm at Kika productions, K E E K A productions. Um, I also have a website, www.kikaproductions.com, which is mostly geared toward, uh, the weddings and stuff that I film, but I think it does have a page on there where you can find links to my other movies, um, which are also on Amazon prime, uh, Mr. White, uh, lover boy, ragdoll. All of those are on (laughs) Amazon right now. Um, those are the last three before obsidian and definitely, uh, get a chance if you get a chance check out obsidian because that is um that's that's been my everything for the last seven years that's that's what we've been working for yeah it's fabulous folks and 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 and, you know obviously i'm gonna have a biased opinion but the the thing i liked about it because because i'm not that much into horror the thing i liked about it was that a great narrative and great character development now, I, I know Erica's into blood and guts, but believe it or not, there's really not, there's not as much blood and guts as you might think, but it's a, right. but it's in the right places. And that was one of the reasons that attracted me to the project. It wasn't just a, a slasher film for special effects, and it was much more than that. So I, I highly encourage you to take a look at it. Um, right. I really don't like slasher films that much. I know that sounds strange because I'm so passionate about horror, but I, I just don't see the point if, if it's just a mindless bloodbath like i want to know the characters and i want to i want to feel bad or good if they die yeah i, yeah, I yeah. Just want it to be cannon fodder per, yeah perfectly said um gosh erica i can't tell you how much i've enjoyed being uh, reconnecting and getting to know you a little bit better and also learning what your uh, uh favorite film scores are and those sorts of things I, I hope you've enjoyed it as much as i have absolutely thank you so much for having me this has been such an honor and i'm so excited that i got to be part of the halloween you know ramp up uh i love spooky season so (laughs) this was this was great that i got to pick a bunch of horror scores oh believe it believe me it's uh, it's our pleasure uh i want to extend a thank you to our patrons who listen on patreon.com and uh if eric has a little bit of time we might do a little bit of bonus bet here real quick but uh for our patrons only, if you are interested, you can look up on um, patreon.com slash what's the score and you can find us. You get a lot of exclusive content through that. So I want to thank our existing patrons for that uh, and all of our listeners for joining us today for what I hope will be a, a really special episode. And uh, with that, there's only one thing left to say, and that's simply this. My name is Frank R. Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. 
Thanks for listening to What's the Score?